So this morning, rather than uh, so this morning, rather than uh, focus on a, on a particular topic uh, that we might introduce today, I'd like to just step back a bit and look at um, the uh, the totality, as it were of um, what might be going on when we say we're meditating. And I think it becomes clear, uh, not only from reading and studying various texts on Buddhist meditation, but also from the immediate experience of doing it, uh, that it's not reducible to uh, one single technique or one single uh, activity. Uh, Nonetheless, um, what sometimes happens is that a particular tradition might begin to highlight their specific approach and privilege one aspect of the practice as somehow being uh, the key to everything else. And I think Zen is somewhat guilty of that. It has, I think, um, uh, well, privileged meditation for a start, and then the different Zen traditions then uh, specify a particular aspect of that that is really what matters most. And so you get the, the, the discussions between the Soto and the Rinzai, uh, and in Korea you get the disputes between different Rinzai schools and different monasteries in Korea, all of whom somehow are uh, arguing for the for the the supremacy of their particular method, uh, and I think often this lapses into a kind of sectarian uh, exclusiveness. Um, and I really don't want to go down that track. But to resist that temptation, if it is such a thing, then it's useful, I think, to step back and try to look at the bigger picture. And in the talk last night, that was largely what I was trying to do, was to um, locate this exercise, which is, you know, operating within relatively narrow parameters um, in, in a retreat situation, but to set it within a wider field um, of what constitutes our human life. I mean, our Zen teacher in Korea, although he could be quite, quite narrow, even somewhat dogmatic about this particular practice, would at the same time also acknowledge that you cannot, as it were, engage fully with any specific meditation unless it's embedded in an ethical outlook and framework within a contemplative discipline and once you start picking that apart it gets to be more rather than less complex and also um, what is loosely called wisdom in Buddhism Uh, wisdom I think is possibly not the best translation of that term Um, I would take it more to be either understanding or even more broadly still philosophy in other words, having a love of a certain kind of inquiry and intelligence that over time 
uh, refines one's capacity to understand what is going on. And Kuzan Sunim, uh, the teacher we studied with, spoke of these three, ethics, contemplation, and philosophy, uh, as being like the three legs of a tripod. If any one of them is missing, the whole thing falls over. So I do think it's important from time to time to, uh, to not only to, uh, to recognise that, but to also reflect on how um, what we're doing in the somewhat narrow constraints on retreat needs to be understood as part of a, of a bigger story, a bigger picture, which is both our own life in its in, in its uh, completeness, but also um, an awareness of how it contributes to our participation in the wider world, of our community, of our society, uh, of the environment, uh, and so on. So if we um, come back to this practice of questioning, we have been giving very much uh, emphasis to the uh, inquiry aspect, the perplexity, puzzlement, uh, investigation, the posing of this, what is this? <coughs> and perhaps in doing so, although we've concentrated on what I think is a very uh, important element uh, of this exercise, it can tend to um, obscure the framework within which that questioning takes place. So I spoke of it yesterday as including a certain embrace, a certain opening to ourselves, to the world, um, a certain letting go of knee-jerk answers and reactions that it prompts, um, a quality of stilling and stopping and just remaining in that open, empty space of awareness, which we can perhaps understand not as an end in itself, as the meditative state, but rather as a kind of a, um, a possibility of responding to what the world presents to us and what we in our own thoughts present to us in each moment, that there's something about what we're doing as a responsiveness that's emerging out of a a frame of mind that is no longer determined by our habitual patterns of reaction and so on, that comes about through letting go when these things do arise. And that letting go operates within a wider embrace of our experience as a whole. But if we go more specifically into the what is this practice, we've already noted uh, more than once that it has also a flip side, which is not knowing. Whenever you pose a question, even a well, <coughs> banal question, you know, like, where is Newton Abbott? The fact that you ask that question implies that you don't know where Newton Abbott is. Um, that's all kind of obvious in a way. But when we ask the question, what is this? 
And when this refers not to Newton Abbott or even our uh, specific thing that's going on in our experience right now, but if it refers to the totality of what we're encountering in this moment, then the I don't know likewise refers to the totality of what's going on in this moment. I don't know what this is. And it can be helpful, I think, during the retreat to periodically uh, spend a few moments or maybe a whole session that instead of asking, what is this, periodically, to periodically uh, substitute that with, I don't know. And remember that when we, whichever of these phrases we articulate, and you may even have another phrase that works better for you, it doesn't matter. To ask the question with a certain uh, gentleness, a certain sensitivity, and particularly um, to allow yourself to just dwell in the silence that follows. And this is why it's important not to just keep repeating in any mechanical way, but to ask yourself, you know, what is this? Or to say, I don't know. And then, as it were, just to kind of linger in uh, the quality of silence that comes in its wake. And in some ways, it's that quality of silence that I think is perhaps more important there's something somehow rich in possibility in that silence. But in dwelling in that silence, I think there's more than just the humility of, of not knowing, but at least two other qualities, I think, also come into play. Martine spoke of one of them yesterday, which is listening. And we can think of listening in meditation in two ways. I think she mentioned them. One is that it's sometimes useful to extend one's attention to what you literally hear in the room, outside the room, perhaps also the, the high-pitched whine in your inner ear or whatever it is, in order that we um, open up our attention um, rather than get too locked into a meditation which is sort of primed to focus on a particular point. Something that we often don't notice is that when we talk about meditation, we're very often speaking metaphorically. So, for example, when we say, watch the breath, um, we're actually comparing that um, meditation there to what it's like to look at something. We say, watch the breath. But of course, you've got your eyes closed and you can't see the breath anyway. But it doesn't bother us. In fact, we don't even think twice when somebody says, watch the breath that what we're doing is we're using an ocular metaphor. It's like saying, imagine that you could see the breath and now watch it. 
And I feel that the ocular metaphor is probably one of the most dominant ones in um, the language of meditation. For example, take the word vipassana. Pasana, pasati, is the ordinary Pali word for to see with the eyes. Vipassana is, V is a kind of intensifier. So vipassati means to look intensely. But again, it's as though we were doing something with our eyes. And I think in unconsciously adopting that metaphor, we also unconsciously adopt a certain certain inner posture. We might feel when we're meditating that there's a little little me in the back of my head uh, kind of looking down on my breath. I know it sounds a bit silly when you put it like that, but it's, it's interesting to see how we literalize those metaphors and find ourselves meditating as though we were looking at something. So when we look at something uh, in, a, in, in a focused way, what we tend to assume is a stance in which we're narrowing the focus of our attention like a kind of a, a ray that <coughs> settles or pins down on a particular point outside of ourselves. Um, And Buddhism has used that continuously. It talks of one-pointed meditation, which is basically this idea of narrowing your attention to a point. But when we switch the metaphor, and I think Zen, of all the traditions, has done this most deliberately, uh, to listening, then the whole, um, uh, the whole uh, posture changes. The stance we adopt changes. For example, imagine you are listening to a, a favourite piece of music. You know, what do you do? Well, what I do is I often close my eyes in order to not be distracted. I might turn the lights down. I might lie back in a comfortable chair. And um, I might turn the volume up in order that I can somehow allow the, um, the, the polyphony of sound to somehow um, surround me with surround sound and in, in, in a weirdly inverted way from looking come into me rather than me go out to it. And I don't single out particular instruments and if I do I kind of miss the whole I try to somehow let go of wanting to pin anything down and I just want to be open to whatever uh, comes up. So it's sort of the opposite of looking, in a way. So when we ask the question, what is this? Or we say, I don't know. Then in the silence that follows, we listen. Not literally for sounds and certainly not for some little inner voice that's going to give us the answer. But rather we listen in the sense that we open ourselves to whatever uh, may arise um, or not arise uh, in the wake of having posed that question. So listening, therefore, becomes a, um, a metaphor for opening ourselves to 
however the world and our experience and our mind might respond in an unfamiliar way, in an unconditioned way, to the posing of a question. And so when we settle in the meditation, we may spend more and more time just in this open, as it were, listening space. Um, it's also interesting that uh, this idea of listening is associated with the bodhisattva of compassion. And what happened in China was that the figure of Avalokiteshvara or Lokeshvara, or Chenrezig in Tibet, underwent a sex change and became gendered as a woman, Guanyin. And Guanyin. Uh, means the one who attends to the sounds, um, the one who listens. And that's usually interpreted to mean the one who listens to the cries of the world. So I think there's something significant in the choice of that term, which is not reflected in the Sanskrit at all, um, and the change of gender that there's something about a kind of a soft, gentle openness and care that comes with this listening. And so someone yesterday asked about how this, uh, this first task of embracing life, whether it be through questioning or mindfulness, also somehow extends to, to others. And I think very much that it does. And I think the cultivation of this kind of a sensitive, somehow non-self-centered listening is also an opening not only to uh, you know, actual sounds or a way of somehow attuning oneself to the world, but it's also an opening uh, to the cries of the world. There is a quality there in which we're open to being empathetic, uh, feeling or being sensitive to how others feel. And that, I think, is very much, you know, the core of what we're doing here. Another element, so far we've, we have the questioning, which is, as it were, the sort of the central core, but that is held within an environment of not knowing, of listening, and I think also what we might call waiting and um, again, this is not the same as expecting. Uh, in English, you don't necessarily associate those words, but in, in German, for example, you, it, it's warten und erwarten. Um, in French, too, you make a similar sort of distinction. Um, that expecting is a kind of waiting, but it's a waiting that uh, has an agenda. And... I think it's very difficult uh, in meditation, uh, particularly when we've had the misfortune to have studied Buddhism, that um, our waiting in meditation doesn't have an agenda. And the agenda usually is, I want to get enlightened, or I want to be wise, or I want to realize one of these other great things that the Buddhists talk about. Now that's all very well in terms of giving one maybe a motive to do the practice. 
Um, and I do think it's important to frame one's practice in, a, in some kind of coherent um, vision of what it is one aspires for. But we must be careful not to let that preconceived idea of enlightenment or insight or whatever come to somehow determine what it is that we're doing. In other words, although we say, okay, I mustn't have any fantasies about the goal of the practice, I must be in the present and so on. It's not that easy to uh, switch off the human tendency to expect a result. And often when the meditation sometimes calms down, you become perhaps unusually still and clear. Very often that quality of mind is compromised by an expectation that now something special is going to happen. And we might have some picture in our mind that came from perhaps other experiences we've had in the past. And one of the big problems in meditation is bringing our past meditative experience with us. And many of us perhaps have had moments either in a formal meditation retreat or perhaps without meditating at all, just moments in which the world has suddenly revealed itself in, a, in an unusual and unexpected way. A bit like the story I told you about walking in the forest with the bucket. That's been a big problem for me because I keep wanting to get it back again. So although it's not easy, I think we need to learn to differentiate between simply waiting for whatever might happen without expectations, without some agenda, as opposed to um, even subliminally being driven by a, an agenda of an expected goal. So the problem with that um, is that it means that there are no guarantees that uh, anything particular is going to happen. We have to be open to the fact that we're not in charge of how our lives will unfold in this silent, still, not knowing and questioning space. We're somehow, there's an element of surrender not a surrender to an authority figure, but somehow giving ourselves to the sheer unfolding of life itself and allowing ourselves just to be open, responsive, alert, uh, but without a game plan that has already, uh, in a sense, foreseen the result. So to let go of memories that we might have had of past experiences, to let go of what we might have read in books or heard on, on in, in talks, and really just to try to surrender to the moment as it is unfolding uh, right now. Yeah, it sounds nice perhaps, but it's not actually that easy to do. We seem to be largely primed not to attend to our experience in that way. But I think this touches also on what is um, maybe the third of these four tasks, to, to see the stopping, is what the Pali says literally. 
to see the stopping of reactivity. So when there are moments in which the mind does get much more still and quiet, then to actually uh, value and and consciously uh, recognize what it's like, what it feels like, momentarily at least, to have come to a sort of stop and to allow yourself to settle into that and to listen and to wait to not know and yet at the same time to be infused with a certain curiosity or puzzlement or perplexity or wonder. Someone asked a question on one of the notes about letting go and how do we How does one know the difference between genuinely letting go um, as opposed to repression or simply distracting oneself with one's chosen object of attention? Um, Which is a good question. Again, letting go is one of these terms that is often used, but it's not always uh, explained very clearly what it means. I think in many ways letting go is, a, is not actually an action at all. Um, again, it reminds me a bit of Dogen's expression, my body and mind fell away. Um, it's allowing oneself to simply be with whatever is occurring and allowing it um, simply to play itself out. So letting go is, um, in a way, more about a not doing. In classical uh, Indian Buddhism, um, when, let's say, fear or worry arises in the mind, um, when you, to let go of it, uh, means to basically to look at it and experience it uh, very clearly in such a way that you observe its impermanent nature. And of its own accord, although this might take time, it will arise and it will pass away. That's what things do. And the very last words of the Buddha's first sermon, which are not actually spoken by him, but by Kondanya, who was one of the five ascetics attending, Um, was um, whatever is subject to arising is subject to passing. And this became almost a slogan of the early Buddhist community. Whatever is subject to arising is subject to passing. Whatever arises, ceases. And um, that was how Kondanya articulated um, the opening of the Dharma eye. In other words, the, the first kind of glimpse as to what this teaching is about. And I think it touches very much on what it means to let go. To let go means to allow things to simply play themselves out. Um, and that's quite different, I think, from repressing. Repressing would be uh, this, I've got this worry running through my mind and I wish it wasn't there and I'm 
Buddhist, I shouldn't really feel like this, I've done all these retreats, and all of this crap keeps coming up in my brain. Um, I don't like that. And so we try somehow to either pretend it's not happening, or we get frustrated with it, or we try and force ourselves to think of something else. But that's not, I think, what is meant at all. Uh, it's very much, I think, allowing, uh, allowing nature, as it were, to sort of take, just, just do its thing. And it's only by identifying with or entering into uh, either um, an identification with what's coming up or an aversion towards what's coming up that we fail to let go. To let go means to see clearly and to notice how whatever arises will, of its own accord, pass away. Um, in the work of Shantideva, who was an 8th century Indian Mahayana monk, uh, he says, remain like a piece of wood, stay like a log. In other words, whatever happens, don't react. Just let it play itself out. So I think that's also the case with uh, when we ask this question, particularly at the beginning. Um, you know, we find ourselves assailed with all sorts of answers and speculations, and very often get lose the quality of meditative stillness as a result. Just be like a log. Be like a piece of wood. Let these things just come and go. Don't try to stop them, because you can't. But if you don't feed them, if you don't add fuel to the fire, then they will die down of their own accord. So letting go in some ways might not even be the best word. Um, It's far better, I think, than the usual translation, which is abandon. Uh, That, I I think, is really rather too aggressive and aversive. Um, Letting go is probably the best we can do in English. To let be, galasenheit, as Heidegger called it. Just letting things be. Okay, um, we have a few minutes. If anyone would have a practical question. Yeah. Has um, a question about the sitting position. Uh-huh. Uh, I know that the seated posture is considered very important in the Solomon Zen tradition. Uh-huh. For me, I find it's very conducive to sleepiness. Uh-huh. Um, teachers have given me different bits of advice over the years about what to do about sleepiness, which helps slightly, but still. Um, if I'm walking or standing, my mind is much more alert. If I'm sitting here staring at the wall, between now and sort of four-ish this afternoon, I'm going to be in volume dark quite a lot of the time. Uh-huh. Um, so two questions, really. Number one, why so much sitting? And number two, would you advise me to sit here and doze, or to skip sitting to not walk in the room? Um, well, our teacher, uh, Kuzan Sunem, uh, his way of dealing... Well, he had two ways of dealing with uh, sleepiness. He also suffered from it a lot. And one way was to stand on his tiptoes all night sometimes, he said. I find that hard to believe. But again, standing is, is obviously less prone to sleepiness, as you correctly point out. The other thing he used to do, he used to tie a knife to his chest. <laughs> <laughs> With a point. Uh, and 
each time he did the nodding dog routine, he got a bit of a shock. So, um, I wouldn't recommend that. Uh, but that's a good, a good uh, illustration of precisely the thing you're talking about. And I think some of us are more prone to sleepiness than others. I think it's probably to do with our metabolism or something. So, yeah, actually, I would um, suggest you stand up. Stand on the cushion. Stand up in here? Yeah. Why not? Stand up in here. Or if you want, I think it's more useful, if you're going to spend 30 minutes just dozing, then spend 30 minutes walking up and down on the garden outside. I don't have any issue with that at all. I do think there is a sort of esprit de corps. Uh, we're all sitting together and walking together. I think it does help everyone somehow you know, go through you know, resistance that they probably wouldn't go through if they were all by themselves. So there is that element of, of, of sitting meditation. But again, if you go to um, Huineng, Huineng was the teacher of Bai Zhang, the one who started this What Is This practice. Um, in his text, the Platform Sutra, he actually asks the rhetorical question, what is Cao Chan? or sitting meditation, Zazen, or Jam Son in Korea. And he said, sitting meditation is when the mind has nowhere to rest. He doesn't give any indication of you know, posture, anything like that at all. Uh, he understands Zazen, Cao Chan, as really a quality of mind, a quality of mind in which the mind is not jumping from one object to the next. It's not constantly trying to latch on to something. So that again suggests that what is important in Zazen is not so much the posture at all, but the quality of mind that that form of practice um, might be conducive to. But I think particularly at this time in the retreat and also since we like to think that everyone here is an autonomous adult, then if you're nodding, then go outside. Or stand up on the cushion. It's okay too. But why? I wouldn't lie down. <laughs> <laughs> that might make things worse. Yes? Um, I'm just curious about the issue of mind wandering on. In general, my experience, and might be quite uh, an early stage one, is that when I'm lost in fantasy or what have you, um, I become aware of it either when the fantasy has reached its kind of culmination and I can go, oh god, not again. Or um, <clears throat> my kind of bare attention resurfaces through a process of dialectics. Mm -hmm. so, um, oh, but that's not right, and that's not right. And you know, I, I get on the cushion, and um, there, there isn't a sense of a kind of bare awareness mm -hmm. that supports um, this kind of deep fabrications, whatever they may be. Um, I was just wondering if you had anything to say about developing that sensation of bare awareness underlying the fabrication uh, that you seem to be pointing towards. Yes. Um, well, I think the first thing to acknowledge is that um, mental proliferation is just what the brain does. 
and um, <clears throat> much in the same way that the liver produces bile, the brain produces thoughts. So it's not a, it, in some sense we just have to say yes, that's what the brain does. But if you don't feed those thoughts, uh, then that might lead over time to their becoming less uh, prolific and the mind really quietening down. I mean, you might have found in the course of two or three days on retreat that you're not as, as preoccupied and taken up with thoughts as you might have been before. Um, and also because you're putting yourself under this rather um, special environment, rather contrived environment here, you become in some ways even that much more aware to how distracted you are. Whereas in everyday life, you know, you've got a million other things to do, um, and you probably just don't really notice when you're running on automatic pilot. I think we run on automatic pilot quite a lot when we're doing habitual activity, like driving a car. Uh, we don't think about what we're doing, we're dreaming away, but we're still alert enough, hopefully, not to drive into going in the car next to us. But here in, on a retreat, you become hyper-aware because there's nothing else to do, um, of the proliferations of thought. And I think, in some respects, it's a question of, um, of persistence and continuity over time that you become more and more able uh, not to be caught up in them, even though they may still continue to arise as before. And I think that's what you're referring to by this sort of underlying bare awareness that is conscious of the thoughts. And that, I feel, is a much is in fact what we're aiming at, not eliminating thoughts, but rather finding a frame of mind where thoughts can become a bit like the rooks in the tree. You know, they're there, nothing much we can do about them, and yet they don't bother us anymore. Uh, and, and that, I, I mean, it's more difficult because it's so intimately tied into our, you know, our, our very consciousness of, of, of being here. But I do feel that over time we catch ourselves more quickly when we wander off. That there's not such a delay between the initial distraction and then 15, 20 minutes go by where we're having this incredible fantasy and then the bell goes and we sort of jerk too. Uh, that happens less and less. We become, I think, more and more attuned to the emergence of thoughts and we catch them more at their inception. So even though that may not switch them off, it they develop less and less of a charge that once it's got going becomes really rather difficult to, to do anything much about. But ultimately, it's a question of uh, learning to somehow maintain this awareness even in the midst of thought. Um, again, quoting Hui Neng, he said, in Zen they talk of no thought, Mu Xin. And um, he says in one passage, um, even in the midst of thought, there is no thought. And that, I think, is, is, is addressing precisely this point, that this uh, bare attention or awareness, um, which is not preoccupied with thought, can be present even when the thoughts are going on. 
Okay, quickly, because we have to walk. Yes, here and then behind you. Yeah. When one has reached the point where the fine balance between um, um, the quietness and the brightness has reached quite a pleasant state, uh-huh. why not using the word enjoying instead of waiting? Enjoying? Yes. Yeah, that's okay. Mm. In, in the waiting there is a stiffness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, this is a good point. I mean, it's true that um, there is, I think, an enjoyment in finding uh, a stillness and a clarity of mind. This is true. Uh, and often, I think, we fail to... Buddhism is so preoccupied with suffering that we... <laughs> We possibly don't give sufficient attention to that. In some practices, like in, in concentration practices, they do talk of rapture and joy. And uh, in Zen, they don't tend to use that language so much. But it's true. And I think it's important to, to value that joy that we find in the practice. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes? I wonder what you thought the role of, of this idea of awareness and awareness. Awareness of awareness. So um, I know in, in, in Vipassana, one of the teachings is that whatever, whatever you're doing, to be aware that you're doing just that. Uh-huh. And my question really then is um, a sense, I think some people call it flow, but a sense where, say, if you're gardening, you become so um, engaged actually in the present mm-hmm. moment that the awareness of what you're doing completely goes. And then um, maybe perception of self, perception of time also goes, mm-hmm. and then you sort of wake up at a later point. You differentiate it from typical mind wandering because actually you're engaged on task. Mm. That's right. Yeah. Is, is this a, a negative, a positive, indifferent, or, or what would you say? Because it's, it's lacking that. No, I, I think that's very. Um, I mean, I sometimes use the, uh, uh, the expression flow which comes from Chick Sense Mihaly. He's a psychologist. Mikhail Chick Sense Mihaly, who's developed a whole psychology of flow. And I think it's very close to what in Buddhism they call um, entering the stream. The stream is also a flow. But it's a flow, a stream is a flow that's held within, within certain, within banks. It flows towards a goal. It's, it's held, it's channeled. And the experience of entering the stream is equivalent to the, um, the fourth task, <coughs> cultivating the path. It's exactly the same. Uh, the person who enters the stream is the one who has entered the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path in, includes mindfulness and awareness um, and concentration, which is what we're developing here. So when we are in the flow of the practice, it is a task, as I suggested last night. And when we're in that task, a, de- a, de- a considerable degree of self-consciousness naturally falls away. And I think you're right. It's a question uh, of uh, if, if, if you're engaged you know, fruitfully in, a, in an activity that enables you somehow to feel fully alive, you don't, there's not a part of you that's sort of cut off and looking in at what's going on and judging it. You're just doing it. 
And again, I think in Zen, this is emphasized quite a lot. You know, they say these little expressions like, you know, when you're, what is the practice of Zen? When you're sleepy, you sleep. When you're hungry, you eat. These rather sort of oxymoron, is it? Well, anyway, these rather sort of banal sounding statements that I think actually are pointing to um, being totally in the activity that you're doing without this constant self-conscious self-reference. But then what you might... I think I would make the difference between a pervasive awareness which is not self-conscious in the activity to being taken over by the activity where actually there, there is not so much awareness but it's more like I would nearly say grasping at the activity, which then might make you the last longer with the activity. And then you kind of like not aware of your body, that maybe you're damaging your body because you are so caught in the activity. So I would make a difference between what I would call a pervasive awareness, because it's not I am gardening, but it's kind of being totally in the experience of gardening, being aware of oneself or what one do but not being self-conscious about it. But you have enough awareness that at some point you might think, oh, maybe now I should stretch my back or thing of that nature. So I would make a little difference in connection to that. Okay, we need to, um, uh, we need to stop here and have a short <coughs> walk and then we'll begin the morning session. Thank you.